We have been going through the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, beginning this morning with verse 7. says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and Ever. As we've been going through the book, we've noted that the book is divided into seven parallel segments. And these seven parallel segments go over events that are in the interadvental period, the period between Christ's first coming and second coming. And so it's kind of like I've used an illustration of the movie Vantage Point. Here's another illustration I've heard used. It's kind of like watching an instant replay. You know, when you're watching a sporting event and they show you a replay, they'll show the same play from multiple different angles, right? I remember a commercial that I saw once of a sitcom. Guy's sitting there watching TV and he's like, wow, that guy just made the same incredible play twice in a row. Well, it was the replay, right? So the book of Revelation, I believe, goes over many of the same events And it looks at them then from different angles. You know, as you study through the scriptures and it speaks about an event like the final coming of Christ, not every passage is going to give all of the details in regard to what takes place when Christ returns. Some passages will mention one thing over here. Another passage will mention another detail. But when we put them all together, then we see the fuller picture of what God intends for us to know because he's revealed it in his word. So as we've worked our way through Revelation, we've noted that chapter 19 and verse 19 and following refers to the same event that happens in chapter 20, beginning with verse 7, which is referring to the same events that happen in chapter 16 in what is called the Battle of Armageddon. So what we're seeing here when Satan is released and deceiving the nations from the corners of the four corners of the earth, gathering together to a great battle, and then fire coming down from heaven, from God, and wiping them out, I believe is speaking about what we would call the Battle of Armageddon. It's speaking about the same event. And we've looked at multiple different evidences for that over the past several months. What we're going to do today with the Lord's help is I want to look at multiple passages of scripture that teach us what will happen when Christ returns. We're going to walk through some of the scriptures and answer this question. What happens when Jesus returns? And then we're going to consider the application that is present in many of these passages, namely How does this 
drive us to, toward righteousness and comfort us in the midst of difficult times. Okay? So what happens when Jesus returns? And this will all help us to understand this text in Revelation chapter 20, because Revelation 20 and verses 7 and following is talking about what happens right before Jesus Christ returns. Okay? So, first of all, let's start with the Gospel of Matthew. Did you know Matthew is a great book when we're talking about eschatology, end times events? Yes, it is. We have some very clear teaching in the book of Matthew. But we're going to start with chapter 13 and Jesus' explanation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Remember Jesus told a parable? And he said that there was a landowner and he sowed wheat and then weeds grew up in the midst of the wheat and the workers came to him and said, what should we do? And he said to allow those to grow together until the harvest time and then there'll be the separation and the burning of the weeds and the gathering of the wheat into the barn. Well, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, interpret this for us. Tell us what this means. And beginning in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus explains this parable in detail. And this parable gives us some details about what will happen when Jesus returns. Okay? Starting with verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away, came into the house. His disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares or the weeds are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest, notice this, is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares, the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the of this age, the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This passage is talking about what happens when Jesus returns we're going to tie it together with Matthew 24. And we know this is what happens when Jesus returns because in Matthew 24, it helps us to see this. What happens when Jesus returns? All in this case, it's mentioning all of the, the evil people are going to be gathered together for the judgment. They're going to be judged and then they're going to be cast into the flames, into the fire. And when does this happen? At the end of this age. We've done a message looking at the Bible timeline that speaks of this age and the age to come. This age is characterized by sin, by death, by human institutions such as marriage. The age to come is characterized by no sin. There is no death. We'll be like the angels in heaven. There'll be no marriage. What divides those two ages? The return of Jesus. What happens at the end of the age? Does this parable say at the end of the age, there is the judgment and the wicked are separated from the righteous and cast into the lake of fire. 
Okay, so as we go through these, I I think we're going to see that the timeline of eschatology is actually very simple. It's very simple. There is one bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he returns, the resurrection of the dead takes place, and there is one resurrection of the dead. One bodily return of Christ, one resurrection of the dead, one judgment day, and the new heavens and new earth will be created. There will be hell for those who are lost and living in the new heavens and new earth for the righteous. Now look over to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at all uh, many passages of scripture in a row which show us what happens when Jesus returns. Now look at Matthew chapter 24. Let's begin with verse 4. Jesus is answering questions by the disciples after he has predicted the fall of the temple in AD, which would occur in AD 70. And the disciples come to Jesus privately in verse 3, saying, Tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, we already saw from Matthew chapter 13, at the end of the age, Jesus said he will gather together from the four winds, from all corners of the earth, all of the unrighteous, and they're going to be judged at the end of the age. Now Jesus goes on to answer these questions. Let's start with verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. Now I want you to pause right here for a minute. Think about this. As we're thinking about what happens when Jesus returns, I want us to also think about what are some things that will precede Jesus' return. This text is frequently pointed to, and it is used as signs, and it says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, that means Jesus' coming is at hand. It's here. Jesus says the opposite in this text, if we keep reading. This is fascinating. People use this text all the time to say, oh, well, here's another war, so the end must be near. Jesus must be coming. Notice what Jesus says. He says the opposite. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. That's as clear as it gets. It's saying when you hear of all these things taking place, don't be troubled thinking that the end has come. No, these things are going to be a natural part of life until Jesus returns. There's a flow. It says, For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. All these are the beginning of sorrows. As we look through these texts in Scripture, we're going to see a little bit later that there is a more definitive sign that will take place before Jesus' bodily return to the earth. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But just the fact that there are wars that are going on on the earth and there are pestilences and there are plagues and there are earthquakes, these types of things, 
these are not definitive signs that the coming of Jesus Christ is at hand. These are things that are a natural part of the period between Christ's first and second coming that will happen over and over and over and over again. Okay? Now, let's jump down to where Christ talks specifically about his coming in this passage. Verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Notice who will see him coming. All the tribes of the earth. Again, as we walk through many, many passages, what we're going to see is that there is one return of Jesus Christ, and that is his bodily return. Okay? And that these texts show over and over again that it's not that he is going to come in a secret rapture and take Christians out of the earth, but the unbelievers will not see him come at that time. It's not that he's going to secretly rapture Christians out in a coming that he only comes down partially to the earth and then pulls them out, and there is no final judgment that takes place at that time. These texts definitively show that what happens when Jesus returns... Notice this, it says all the nations of the earth will see him when he comes. All of them will. And he will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And what will they do? Gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. What did we see in Matthew chapter 13? At the end of what? The age... The angels who are the harvesters will go out and gather the elect from the four winds. So putting this together with Matthew 13, all of the unrighteous are going to be gathered together then. All of the righteous are going to be gathered together then. When does this happen? When Jesus comes bodily and the whole earth will see him at that time. You see? One coming of Jesus. All people gathered together and the judgment taking place. Now look at Matthew chapter 25. In verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Does that sound familiar? Matthew 13. Matthew 24, what is this talking about? When Jesus returns, when Jesus comes. And notice the angels are mentioned again. You see, these things all connect. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. What happened in Matthew 13? The gathering. What happens in Matthew 24? The gathering. What happens here? The gathering. When does this happen? When Jesus comes. 
All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And what's the final conclusion to this? Verse 46, the unrighteous will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is speaking about the one judgment that takes place at the one return of Christ when all the nations will see him and all people will be gathered together, both the elect and the non-elect, and all will be judged. You see? Well, let's, let's keep going through the scriptures and we'll see more. Now, look over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. One of the characteristics of this age in which we live is that we live in a cursed world. We live in a fallen world. The Bible describes for us that suffering and persecution is an expected part of the life of a believer and that God uses that to purify us to sanctify us, not to save us. Obviously, we're not saved through any work apart from the work of Jesus Christ and justified by grace through faith. But what the Bible teaches is that we grow in our faith through suffering, not despite suffering. See, we have the idea that if, oh, if only I would stop suffering, then I could get right, my my faith will increase and my life will be better. You know what? The Bible doesn't teach that. The New Testament teaches that it is through suffering that God works the greatest in our lives. Like gold that is purified by the fire. Romans chapter 8 teaches us that this world and the curse of this world and the sufferings which we endure and the persecution which we face is a normal part of life and that we should expect that to end only when Christ comes and we are raised with glorified bodies. Notice this. Let's jump in with verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Notice If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You see, it's an expected part of the Christian life to endure suffering. And as we've looked at some of the different views regarding eschatology, and remember, I've mentioned over and over again that there are different views that are within the Christian camp. We don't have to break fellowship over differences of opinion on the non-essentials in these matters. I preached a whole message showing some of the difficulties with premillennialism. Now I need to mention something specifically about postmillennialism. Postmillennialism has as a fundamental idea that at the return of Christ, he will return to a Christianized world, a world where persecution is Rare. It is not the norm. The majority of the nations have been Christianized. There are Christian leaders 
And it's a golden era on earth defined by material and spiritual prosperity. But yet there are texts like this which indicate that the norm and the expected reality for all believers should be that we're going to suffer persecution at the hands of unbelievers. And this text gives us an idea of when we should expect that this will cease. And it's not in this age that it's going to cease. This age is characterized as an evil age. Galatians chapter 6 or chapter 1 says that this is a present evil age. Notice as we continue in this passage, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the, with the glory which shall be revealed in us. When he talks about the glory that will be revealed in us, what is he talking about? He's talking about our resurrection from the dead. Our glorified bodies. When we will no longer have any suffering. Right? When will this happen? For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Even this created order is waiting for us to be glorified and raised. For the creation was subjected to futility. It was cursed because of sin, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. Notice the redemption of our bodies. You see, texts such as this say we should expect it to be a normal part of life that we are going to suffer and that will even endure persecution because it goes on to say at the end of this chapter, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword? But it says in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, this text is teaching that this entire creation and the curse and the persecution that is a part of this life will continue until the glorification of our bodies, until the resurrection of the dead. When does that happen? That happens when Jesus returns. That happens when Jesus Christ returns. Now, this text and then other texts like Jesus saying there are few who enter into everlasting life and the many other texts that speak like this, the post-millennial position has to relegate texts like this to the time of the early church and say, no, this is not something that's expected and is going to continue, but these were just the general circumstances under which it was written. But you see, this text does not teach that because it says specifically that this creation is going to labor under this curse until the glorification of the body, until we are raised from the dead. Furthermore, a text like Jesus saying, few there are who find it, I find that difficult to say, oh, well, Jesus was just talking to the Jewish people about Jewish people, not many of them being saved, but then, you know, uh, when the Gentiles came in, you know, basically you're going to have masses of people saved. 
know what Jesus is talking about there in a general respect. If you take a snapshot of the globe and all the people on the globe in a general respect at any given time, there are going to be few people who are truly regenerate compared to the entire population. And that's the way it's been throughout human history, except for a few periods like after the flood when you had eight people that were left alive. (laughs) But the reality is, even with the great awakenings that have taken place, if you take a snapshot of the entire globe and every person living on the face of the globe, it is still fewer people who are saved than who are not saved. Okay? Well, I don't have time to go into it, and it's not our purpose today, but what about texts that speak about the knowledge of the Lord covering the earth and nations and people coming and kings coming in to worship the Lord? Well, two possibilities. One, notice that these are prophetic texts. Those are texts from the Old Testament, the terminology of the prophets, And those could be referring to one or one of two things. One, that could be referring to the advancement of the gospel that went out after Jesus was triumphant in his work. And the fact of the matter is, when Jesus came, there was only one nation on earth that had any semblance of truth, and that was the nation of Israel. But even its leaders rejected their own Messiah. But after Jesus came... The gospel spread, and Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, by the time he wrote that book, the gospel had gone to all the known world. Okay, But those passages will say things like, all the kings will come and worship before the Lord, and even post-millennialists will have to admit, no, that doesn't mean every single king on the face of the earth is going to do that. So this could be a generalized statement speaking about The gospel going forth, and in Revelation it says there will be some from every kindred, tribe, and tongue that will ultimately be saved. That does not mean that all people are ultimately going to be saved, or even the majority of humanity ultimately will be saved, but that there are some from every nation that will be saved. That's one possibility. Another possibility for those texts is that that's talking about what will happen when Jesus comes. It's talking about the new heavens and new earth and what happens in righteousness. But notice again, a point of hermeneutics. We let the didactic passages instruct us and then we interpret other passages which are more difficult to interpret, such as prophetic texts in the Old Testament, such as the book of Revelation, which is highly figurative, we let the teaching passages in the New Testament help us to interpret these other passages. And as we do that, we then rightly interpret the word of God. And it's not that these things contradict with one another, they flow together. But... We have to see how it all flows together. You can't ignore half of the scriptures that speak about one thing that ties in with another thing and just look at the other half which speaks about the other portion of it and get it right. That's kind of like if a train goes out and it tries to run on one track instead of the two tracks. How far is it going to get? If a train goes off of one track, one of the rails, 
and it's trying to ride on one rail, how far is it going to get before it derails? In the scriptures, there are many, many passages about many teachings that give us two different rails or more, and we have to see how those all flow together. And we use a hermeneutic called the analoga fide, the rule of faith. And what that means is we use scripture to interpret scripture. If there's a less clear passage of scripture, we go to clearer passages of scripture that speak about the subject and they help us understand the less clear, right? We look at all of the scriptures and what is taught about a particular subject to give us the fuller picture of what is taught. Not just pick one or two passages out here and ignore the rest. And one of the things we're doing this morning is we're looking at teaching passages of scripture to help inform us regarding what happens when Jesus comes. We're looking at prose passages of scripture primarily rather than figurative passages or prophetic passages or poetic passages. Okay. So continuing on then asking what will happen when Jesus comes, this text is indicating tying it together with that the resurrection happens when Jesus comes, that the curse will be lifted from this earth when Jesus comes. Not before, but when he comes. And the resurrection from the dead will take place. Okay, now let's jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's continue to try and see how all of these flow together and all of these teach details and how all of these mesh so well with one another to tell us what happens when Jesus returns. First Corinthians chapter 15. One of the first things that's in this passage is the reality that Jesus has has been raised from the dead. And this is a central tenet of the Christian faith. If somebody says, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Guess what? They're not a Christian. This says that the entire faith is worthless. It's empty if if the tomb is full. If the tomb is full and Jesus is still in there, our faith is empty. But since the tomb is empty, our faith is full. Okay, this is an essential tenet of the faith. This text talks then a little bit about. Some details of what happens when Jesus returns. Let's start with verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's, When? When are we raised? At his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So what happens when Jesus returns? We are raised from the dead. And then comes the end. Now, the premillennial position will say, when it says then comes the end, that there's a gap of over a thousand years between Christ's coming and the resurrection of saints 
and the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. I propose that this passage is teaching not a thousand-year gap in between those things, but the resurrection happens, in fact, when Jesus returns bodily to the earth, and at that point, all death has ended. Okay, Because the premillennial position will also say that during this thousand-year period, there will still be death on the earth. There will be some glorified saints who are in raised bodies, but they're going to be living alongside of corporeal persons who will die. Regular old people who will still die. This text goes on to teach, though, that death is ended when Jesus returns. Notice this. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Well, there's a problem, quite frankly, for premillennialism. Because it is saying that during this millennial kingdom, there will be people with flesh and blood bodies who are saved and who will yet die, but yet they will be in the millennial kingdom. But this says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We're going to be raised. When does this happen? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When? Notice this. At the last trumpet. When is that? We're going to tie that together with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And five, that happens when Jesus returns. The last trumpet happens when Jesus bodily returns to this earth. That's when the resurrection will take place. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be, will be raised incorruptible, we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality... Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Unless you were saved during the millennial kingdom, because then you're still going to die. Is that what it goes on to say? No. This is talking about at the return of Christ, that death is ended. The resurrection takes place. There are no believers that are going to die after Jesus returns bodily to the earth. None. You see, this does not permit a thousand-year period where people will be saved and then die physically because death is going to be ended at that point. When? At the last trumpet. When When does that happen? When Jesus returns. You see? Now, many of you know, as you've been listening to me preach over the past several months that I'm coming from the amillennial position. Last week I mentioned some of the difficulties with my own position, some of the harder texts to interpret from my own position. So we've dealt with that. And again, these positions are all within the Christian camp. Okay? So even if we end up disagreeing, we don't have to take out stones to stone one another. What we all need to agree on 
are the things that we're seeing from some of these texts. Not all the details I'm pointing out, but that Jesus is going to bodily return to this earth. That he is going to raise the dead. That there will be a judgment day. That there will be everlasting punishment for the wicked. And there will be everlasting blessing with the Lord for those who have been saved by the work of Jesus, by grace, through faith in his work, not of their own works. Those are essentials. Okay? But I do think that as we put all of this together, that it does help us to see and to refine a little more clearly our views on this matter. So what have we seen thus far in putting all these texts together? Jesus is going to return at the end of this age. When he returns, the angels are going to gather all people, both the unrighteous and the, the righteous. This gathering is going to be when people are raised from the dead. This happens at the last trumpet. So it's when Jesus comes. Death is ended at the last trumpet when Jesus returns, but not before. And we will be with the Lord forever at that point in time. The unrighteous will be separated from the Lord and judged and cast into the lake of fire. Now let's move forward to 1 Thessalonians. All of, all of these passage, passages flow together. All of these passages are indicating what happens when Jesus returns. And if we wrap our minds around this, then we understand more fully what to expect. What are we looking for? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's start with verse 13. First Thessalonians 4.13 But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to be ignorant? <laughs> so that we're going to get instructed. But what's the context here? There would have been false teachers coming in who were saying the resurrection is past. And people began to get worried saying, what about my loved ones? What about my loved ones? What about those who have died? Have they missed it? Have they missed out? Or there would have been people who were being saved and now they're thinking of the question of, well, what about my loved ones who were in the faith, but they died? Are they secure or are they lost? Are they going to miss out on the glory that is to come when Christ comes? Because they're not alive. They're in the grave. Okay. And so the Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you have sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. You see, he's reassuring them that if we are alive at the time when Jesus returns, our dead loved ones who are in the grave are okay. They're in God's hands. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. And notice this, what did we see in 1 Corinthians 15? With the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, think about this for a moment. Is this a quiet event? No, this is an explosive event. Jesus comes. The voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rising first. First Corinthians 15, at the last trumpet, the resurrection takes place. Matthew chapter 24, all the nations of the earth will see him when he comes. When Jesus returns, nobody is going to miss it. Nobody. I remember as a child in, in that passage in Matthew 24, it says there'll be false Christs that rise up and trying to deceive people. And that they would deceive even God's elect, God's chosen ones, if it were possible. And I remember thinking, what if Jesus actually does come to the earth and I miss him? Or what if there's a false Jesus and I believe that it's the true Jesus? Here's the reality of what these passages are teaching. When Jesus Christ comes, nobody will miss him. No one. Why? Because when he comes, all those who are, have died are going to be raised from the dead. There's going to be the great gathering from the four corners of the earth, and everybody's going to be judged when he's come. When he comes, you're not going to miss him. You're not going to miss him. And again, trying to clarify our understanding, all of these passages show that there is not going to be a secret rapture that happens before Jesus bodily comes to the earth where Christians are zapped out silently and quietly and then a seven-year or so period of tribulation. That view of the secret rapture is taught nowhere in the scriptures. Some will say that this passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, teaches that, but this passage does not teach that because what happens, the Lord descends with a shout, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. And we put this together with all these other passages. When does this occur? When Jesus Christ returns to the earth. And it's not a secret event that's spoken of here. It's not a quiet event that is spoken of here. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The word caught up there, that's where we get the idea of the rapture. So the idea of rapture is biblical. We're going to be caught up. We're going to be raised and caught up to meet the Lord. The word meet here in the Greek, when it says we'll meet the Lord in the air, the word meet is a very technical term, which was used specifically and only to refer to an emissary that would go out to meet a dignitary and then escort that dignitary back into the city. And so when it says we will meet the Lord in the air, what that means is this. 
as Jesus is coming to the earth and the shout goes out and the trumpet is sounded, those who have died in Christ will be raised and they're coming with Jesus. If people are alive as believers at that time, they will be carried up to meet the Lord in the air and they will accompany the Lord down to the earth. Because that term meet is a technical term that referred to an emissary, a group of people going out to meet a dignitary as he comes into their city and then escorting him back into their city. Okay? So we will meet the Lord in the air. And we shall always be with the Lord. And notice this practical exhortation. Comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another. If your loved ones have died and they have faith in Christ, don't worry, they're in the hands of God. They're secure. Comfort one another. If you're facing hardships or persecution in this life with the reality that you're going to be with the Lord forever, comfort one another with these words. And then chapter 5 goes on to describe what will happen at the same time. At the same time. It's continuing the exposition of what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. And it says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Let us watch and be sober. Now, if someone is in the pre-tribulational dispensational camp of eschatology, you will see chapter 4 is talking about the secret rapture. And then chapter 5, the day of the Lord talking about the judgment that comes when Christ returns with a gap of a seven-year period in between, at the very least. Some would say three and a half years mid-trib. But I think it should be clear from this text, and it's definitely clear as we turn over to Second Thessalonians, that chapter 5 is talking about the same events it's just giving us more details of what will happen at the event of Christ's return. It's the day of the Lord. Judgment will happen happen when Christ returns. But notice this glorious truth in verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, what? Comfort each other and edify one another just as you're doing. If you're in Christ, you will not face the wrath of Christ when he returns. You are secured. This wrath is described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look over here. Brother Rick read this for us this morning. People were suffering persecution. They're being given here as encouragement 
the reality that Jesus is going to come and pour out wrath against all the enemies of God. They're being encouraged by that. It's a hopeful thing that Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge. He's going to fix all of the messed up things in this world. It's a hopeful thing. Notice the timing of this. Let's start with verse 6. Since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when, notice this, when is a time indicator. When are those who are troubled going to get rest? At the secret rapture? See, according to the dispensational, pre-tribulational view, all of God's people who are saved throughout this time are going to get rest when Jesus raptures them out. But the day of the Lord, the judgment day, will not happen then. But notice what this text says. When will both the rest of believers take place and the judgment of the unrighteous take place? To give you who are troubled rest. And notice this again. Circle this. When. This is telling us when it's going to happen. Okay? This is a clear teaching passage of Scripture saying when these things will take place. We don't have to piece this together from multiple passages of Scripture that don't say when. This says when. When. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. What have we already seen? What happens when Jesus is revealed with his mighty angels? They go and collect everybody up from the four winds of the earth. Right? When does this say that we saints will have rest? It is when Jesus returns. Bodily to the earth, because remember all these other passages, the collection of all the saints from the earth, raised from the dead, and the judgment. All these things happen when Jesus returns. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. When he is revealed. When he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Over 1000 years later, when the unrighteous dead are finally raised and then cast into the lake of fire. No, (laughs) there's no gap here. This says that this will all happen when Jesus comes back. Again, just a critique of the premillennial position, no matter what form of premillennialism you fall into. You got to put a thousand year plus gap in there. Because you're going to see two resurrections, at least. The resurrections of the saints. When Jesus bodily sets foot on the earth. But then after at least a thousand year millennial kingdom, then the resurrection of the of the unrighteous who will then be condemned 
this, this text indicates no such gap. It says these things will happen when Jesus returns. In my opinion, this is far more clear than Revelation chapter 20, which is filled with images and figures of speech. I, I just, this is just where I'm at right now. I'm just being honest. I cannot let Revelation 20 dictate to me that there has to be a gap of over a thousand years in passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I can't let Revelation 20 dictate to me and be the key interpretive text to help me understand all these other passages of Scripture that we've been looking at because Revelation 20 is highly figurative and it's in the most difficult to understand book in the entire Bible. And that's just a fact. And every Bible scholar will tell you that. Revelation is the most difficult book to interpret in all of the scriptures. So my thinking is, why not go to more clear texts to help us understand the less clear texts? One more passage. Second Peter. So what happens when Jesus returns? He returns with his angels. The last trumpet is sounded. There's the voice of the archangel. The dead in Christ are raised. Those who are alive and saved meet the Lord in the air as emissaries, and they come down with the Lord to the earth. The rest of the dead are raised at that time. And the the angels gather all of those who are raised to the place of judgment. Jesus Christ judges and separates Death is ended at that point when Jesus returns and the new heavens and new earth are created. And this we see in 2 Peter chapter 3. And verse 10. And tying this together with 1 Thessalonians 5, it talks about the day of the Lord coming, right? And it says, like a thief in the night. Notice here, First Thess- or 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. See any connection there? It's talking about the same event as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which is talking about the same time frame as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Matthew 13, Matthew 24, 1 Corinthians 15, all of these passages, you see how they all flow together. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. What will happen on that day when Christ returns? The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. Christ comes. It's called the day of the Lord. The new heavens and new earth will be created then. These things all happen. Well, have you noticed the application in these passages?
One is an application of comfort. It's of comfort. And I do want to point out this. I know I've been critiquing various views. But the fact of the matter is, if I have any of the details wrongly, if you have any wrongly, as God's children, we'll all find out when he comes. And none of us are going to be arguing with any of the other at that time. <laughs> we're not going to be like, we're not going to be like, oh, there's Jesus. Oh, look, the resurrection's taking place. Oh, nothing going on here. Ha, I'm right. You're wrong. No, we're going to be so enraptured with Christ and his coming. We're going to be like, okay, I missed that one. Praise the Lord. <laughs> now I know the truth, Right. And it's a comfort to us to know, too, that our dead loved ones are secure in Christ. That there's going to be a resurrection and these messed up bodies are going to be raised into glorious bodies where we're not going to have pain or suffering any longer. And even a more glorious reality for us as the children of God is that sin is going to be put behind us. We're not going to sin against our Jesus anymore. And we're going to get to see him face to face. Can you imagine? We're going to see Jesus. You know, there's that song written, I can only imagine when that day comes. I find myself standing in the sun. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. You know, will I stand before you, Jesus? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I mean, the glorious reality here is that when Jesus comes, we're going to see him. We're going to see him. And, and Brother Rick, in a, a message several months ago, said when we see him, there, there's going to be a familiarity there because we already know him. As his children, we know him, right? And it's going to be like, there you are. There you are. <laughs> Because if you're a child of God, you know him now. You're one of his sheep. You hear his voice. You're following after him. And even if you're a premillennialist or a postmillennialist, you hear his voice and you're following after him. And, and even if you're an all-millennialist, right? You see, we are children of God. And it's comforting to know that we are secure. But then there was one other point of application in these texts, and that is because it's going to be a day of wrath. It is going to be a day of fury. It is going to be a day of fire. When Jesus comes with fire in his eyes and Revelation 19 describes him as coming with a sword out of his mouth, figurative language, but describing judgment, sword out of his mouth, garment stained with blood, crushing his enemies under his feet like grapes being smashed in a wine vat because it is going to be such a fearsome day. These scriptures admonish us, live righteously and watchfully. Live knowing that there is a day of reckoning coming. We don't have to live in fear if we're justified through grace or by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't have to live in fear of that day. 
But at the same time, the scriptures teach, and it's one of these parallel tracks, and we dare not, we dare not ignore both of these tracks. We have to remember as well that if we are not living watchfully, soberly, righteously, if we're saying, oh, I can just live in sin or I can ignore God, then we may be subject to judgment even if we think we are saved. Because Jesus said sobering words in Matthew chapter 7. He said there will be many in that day. Notice this, many in that day who say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these wonderful things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. But what what were they characterized by? Workers of what? Iniquity. Iniquity, lawlessness. What does that mean? If people are living in sin and believing that they're saved, they're going to have a very rude awakening when Jesus comes. So what are we told? Wake up! (laughs) Don't get caught up in sexual immorality or drunkenness or greed or covetousness or any of these things because there's a day of reckoning coming. Jesus is going to come. And the very... One of the very evidences that we are children of God is that we have changed lives. You cannot have an encounter with the Holy Spirit of God and not be changed. Do you think for a moment that God can come into a person's life and indwell them with the Holy Spirit and nothing changes outwardly? Now, we don't get perfected, you know, like zapped and we're perfect. But we change. Our desires change. If we're saved, then we don't love sin. We may sin still, yes, of course. But we come to a place of repentance. And we don't love sin. We despise sin. And we fight against sin. So God says, live in such a way that you know Jesus is coming. It's been said many times, but it is true. What if we were to hear the trumpet right now? What are you thinking about right now? And would you want to be caught thinking that while the trumpet sounds? I'm not saying, what are you doing right now? Because I'm looking at all of you right here. It'd be a good time, good time for the Lord to come back. We're all in church, right? But, but then take this to the level of reality. Is not God with us at all times? Is not the Holy Spirit your companion right now? How ought we to live each and every day for his glory? And we have to live lives of repentance. I I have things from yesterday and the day before that I have to repent of, and I have. If we're honest with ourselves, we look at our lives and the way we respond to circumstances or whatever it may be, and we don't always do it rightly. So we need to repent. But praise the Lord for His forgiveness, and praise the Lord that He's coming. Father, thank You for the time that we've had. We pray that you'll bless the rest of our day together. Thank you for our Lord Jesus and his coming and 
May we anticipate it with joy as your children and may we be watchful. May we be watching and waiting so that we're not found sleeping. May we be like the wise virgins who are prepared for your coming with oil in our lamps, not caught off guard when you come. May we be found in the righteousness of Christ and may we be found living out that righteousness for your glory, O God. In Jesus' name we pray this. And we ask, Lord, you bless the time of meal together in Jesus' name. Amen.